the energy metabolome and mental health, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist. We'll be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 153, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? Thank you so much for bringing me into your day, and I hope that I can give you something interesting to ponder. But before I dive into today's topic, I want to mention a couple of quick things. Firstly, thank you to all of my listeners who are patient with my recent posting schedule. I do an episode every two weeks as of late, but this summer has been a particularly busy summer for me. You all listening now will be the first to hear this news that I have accepted a professor position at William & Mary. I will be starting next month, and so I've been busy with wrapping up all of my research in New York City and preparing for the transition to Williamsburg. I'm really excited for this opportunity. The department is great, students are passionate and energetic, and I'm really excited to be back on a a university campus. Because for the last seven years, I've worked at a hospital research environment, which I love, and it's different. But there's something really special that I miss about being on a big university campus with lots of excitement and lots of energy. And in my new professor position, I will be teaching about two courses per semester, I'll be teaching, for example, the science of nutrition and nutrition in the brain, which if you are a listener, you know are some of my favorite topics and areas of my expertise, which is nutrition and neuroscience. And I'm also super excited because I will be able to run my own research lab now as well. I'm excited to do research on topics that I cover a lot on this podcast, which is to combine nutrition with neuroscience. Like I want to study disordered eating. I want to include young women in the nutrition intervention studies because young women are a group of individuals that are often left out of nutrition intervention studies because the grand majority of these types of clinical trials will include men and postmenopausal women. Then the findings from those clinical studies are extrapolated to young women, which in some cases is very inaccurate. For example, intermittent fasting is a good example of that. Although the benefits of fasting have been touted for years, some women who are before menopause really struggle with fasting, and it may increase the risk of perpetuating binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa in younger women who are premenopausal. So I want to study why that is, and to understand if and how fasting can be beneficial to other subgroups of people. I want to study the interplay of nutrition with mental health and so much more. So thank you to everyone who has been listening along the way. You have seen me transition and grow as a scientist and a dancer, and it means so much to me that you have been a part of this journey. 
and I can't wait to share the next steps with all of you as I embark on starting up my own lab this year. I also want to say a special thank you to a few individuals who have bought me coffees this month in support of the show. Graham and two anonymous individuals have bought me a coffee, and I sincerely thank you for that. I also have my Patreon patrons who support the show every month. That is Joshua, Jayon, Alex, and Kieran. Thank you so much for your continued support as it really means a lot to me. I try my best to keep the show as unbiased and uninterrupted as possible, so instead of ads, I accept donations in the form of buying me a coffee via Patreon or buymeacoffee.com. So thank you so much to everyone who listens in, who leaves me a message about the show, or who buys me a coffee, because you are what makes this podcast all the worthwhile. So now how about we get into today's topic? I came across a great recent study published in JAMA Psychiatry this year, published by Eamon and colleagues. As many of you know, I love the technique of metabolomics. Where as scientists, we can get a snapshot of someone's metabolism and health by looking at hundreds of molecules in a biological sample, like blood, urine, or saliva. And metabolomics is a quickly growing technique that we are starting to see being incorporated into a lot of different studies. Well, this paper looked at the metabolome in individuals diagnosed with major depressive disorder and compared that in control individuals. And they compared the metabolome to see if any patterns were obvious, to see if we could find new targets for treating or preventing depression that could explain the biology of depression, so to speak. I will also share some other clinical studies in today's episode to make it more actionable and relatable as I always aim to do. But before we get into the core takeaways of today's topic, let me share a foregone fact where I will tell you a scientific finding from long ago. During the period of 1945 to 1965, the introduction of massive blood transfusions as a medical procedure resulted in the identification of a clinical phenomenon characterized as citrate intoxication. Citrate can be added to donated blood to prevent its coagulation and for preservation. As a result, individuals who would receive large amounts of blood transfusions back in the 1940s could develop severe hypercitrosemia, where the plasma citrate concentration increased by tenfold or greater. The consequences, unfortunately, would lead to an individual having impaired blood clotting, extended bleeding time, impaired cardiac function, depression, metabolic alkalosis, and in some cases, sadly, death. As a side note, I've seen debates online about alkaline drinks and diets. And one might think that citrate may have an acidic effect, as it is an acid. However, citrate, found in things like lemon juice, actually can have a metabolic alkaline effect, as it is metabolized to produce bicarbonate ions within our body. And bicarbonate is basic. This can be evidenced, for example, here, when people received citrate in blood transfusions, and the effect being largely metabolically alkaline. So since the 1940s, it is appreciated that the amount of blood given in a blood transfusion containing citrate is to be done with caution. And when I read studies for these foregone facts, it really makes me appreciate how far our medical knowledge has come. So how about we get into the core takeaways of today's topic on the energy metabolome and depression. (laughs) 
In this episode, I highlight a recent study in which the plasma metabolome was investigated in major depressive disorder. The scientists noted an association of many fat molecules and energy metabolites to the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. In this episode, I focus on the energy metabolite component of this study because of its link to neuroplasticity or our brain's ability to adapt and therefore our ability to persevere and be resilient. I discuss how the method of metabolomics in this study is useful, but it does not capture the whole picture. It is still limited. I compare it to being similar to one piece of a puzzle rather than seeing the whole image. Despite that, I think this study can still be useful in understanding some of the biology of depression. I provide actionable and evidence-based suggestions such as high-intensity interval training exercise, if appropriate. As scientists speculate that over 11% of cases could be prevented with regular exercise, and that is cases of major depressive disorder could be prevented with regular exercise. In this episode, I also discuss eating sources of polyunsaturated fatty acids while avoiding their production into lipid peroxides. I also talk a bit about vitamin D as well as a potential strategy to promote mental well-being and brain health. So now, how about we get into those scientific details? In this study published in JAMA Psychiatry by Amen and colleagues this year, they included a very large cohort of people. Specifically, the study included 6,811 individuals with lifetime major depressive disorder, compared with 51,446 control individuals. They also had 4,370 individuals with recurrent major depressive disorder, and compared that to 62,508 control individuals. So they included over 125,000 people in this study. That is a great strength to this paper and part of the reason why I decided to share it with all of you today. In this study, blood samples were drawn and metabolomics profiling that included 249 metabolites was assessed. Their health measures and presence of mood disorders was assessed via questionnaire and self-report of diagnosis for mood disorders and whether or not they were receiving treatment for major depressive disorder. Individuals with psychiatric illnesses besides major depressive disorder, were excluded from this study. Interestingly, of the participants with a history of major depressive disorder, only 19% were using antidepressant medications at the time of the study. Individuals with depression more often used medication for other things like gastric diseases, pain, or addiction. So many were not using medications to manage their symptoms of depression in this study. So the scientists used a technique in this paper called metabolomics. And this is a technique that I personally use in my research too. And I liken metabolomics to getting a snapshot of someone's metabolism and their environmental exposure as well. Because we can see things like fatty acids, amino acids, neurotransmitters, energy metabolites, inflammatory molecules, etc. If our genetics are like the paint in a paint can, the metabolomics is like the final painting. It can really give us an idea of someone's health and metabolism at that point in time. And it can fluctuate depending on the time of day, what someone ate, how well they slept, whether they've exercised, etc. Now the metabolome can be measured from different biological samples like blood, urine, saliva, cerebral spinal fluid. And in this study, they specifically looked at blood, or specifically the drawn-off plasma from the blood. 
Now, when the scientists were trying to draw associations of major depressive disorder to the plasma metabolome, they tried to control for other factors that might influence the metabolism, uh, that might influence the metabolome, such as age, biological sex, physical activity levels, alcohol consumption, smoking, level of education, medication use, etc. When they accounted for these potentially confounding variables, they noted 124 metabolites were associated with the presence of major depressive disorder. So what were these metabolites? Can they help us better understand depression? Well, interestingly, the majority of the metabolites included molecules in lipid metabolism. This primarily included cholesterols and fatty acids. Back in episode 150, I shared my top three nutrition suggestions on how to promote brain health and mental health. And I came up with those top three suggestions based on two criteria, that they needed to have significant scientific evidence to support them, and that the suggestion would impact a significant portion of the population. Well, in episode 150, the third suggestion that I make to promote brain and mental health is related to the molecules that the scientists noted here that were significantly associated with major depressive disorder. In episode 150, I make the suggestion to promote the intake of polyunsaturated fatty acids while avoiding lipid peroxides. Now, one thing that the scientists did not assess here that I think is a limitation of the study is that they didn't look at the more specific fat metabolites or lipid metabolites, such as the oxylipins or the lipid peroxides. Now, these molecules are when the fatty acids are converted to other metabolites that can significantly impact our inflammation, our cell signaling, whether our blood vessels are constricted or dilated, and more. So what I speculate here from this study is that the scientists are picking up on the fact that fat metabolism might be altered in individuals living with major depressive disorder. What I'm going to say is that I speculate that it is specifically the metabolites of those cholesterols and fatty acids that are actually having the impact on mental health and brain health. So let me give a bit of an analogy to explain that. Imagine that we are looking at an active volcano from a distance, and we can only see the top where the lava and smoke are visible. However, beneath the surface is a vast and complex network of chambers, magma, and geological structures that we cannot perceive from our viewpoint. I think similarly in this study, the scientists are seeing the top of the volcano, the macro level, which is that they're seeing some cholesterols and fatty acids being altered with major depressive disorder. But what their technique fails to analyze is the individual oxylipins and lipid peroxides within the cholesterols and phospholipids that are the center of the association to major depressive disorder. Why this is important is because the more specific we can be about exactly which molecules are involved in a condition can guide us to give better treatment strategies with fewer side effects. So how can we relate this finding of altered fat metabolism associated with major depressive disorder to some actionable knowledge for all of us? Well, in episode 150, I discuss how eating sources of polyunsaturated fatty acids, specifically omega-3 fatty acids like flaxseed, chia seed, hemp seed, walnuts, salmon, and sardines may be helpful in promoting a healthy lipidome that can promote brain health. But a key factor is that we need to protect those omega-3s and prevent their oxidation and peroxidation to unhealthy oxylipins or peroxides. And how we can do that is by reducing the amount of heat that is exposed to those healthy fats when we're preparing our foods. So 
ideally to consume unroasted seeds and nuts. To cook salmon only to the necessary temperature of 145 degrees Fahrenheit, not overcook it. If consuming flaxseed oil as a rich of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, to choose cold-pressed flaxseed oil so that those fatty acids remain intact and not peroxidized. Because the alternative method of extracting oil from seeds is expeller-pressed, and expeller-pressing a seed produces heat and can increase the chance of those healthy fatty acids turning into lipid peroxides, which we do not want. In episode 150, I also suggest to add uh, if we are frying foods, to avoid it at all possible, and if we're going to cook with an oil, to choose an oil that is lower in polyunsaturated fatty acids to, again, prevent the production of lipid peroxide. So if we're going to cook with an oil, to ideally do so with something like avocado oil or olive oil or coconut oil that is lower in polyunsaturated fatty acids. But besides altered fat metabolism in individuals with major depressive disorder, what else did the scientists find? The scientists interestingly found some differences in energy metabolism. For example, they noted that citrate was significantly lower in individuals with major depressive disorder. So what is citrate? Citrate is a carboxylic acid. and It is a very important molecule in our body that regulates the energy metabolism of our cells. In our mitochondria, citrate is produced and then enters the TCA cycle and produces our energy molecule ATP. So the fact that individuals living with major depressive disorder had lower citrate levels indicates that perhaps their energy metabolism is perturbed or blunted. Perhaps more attention needs to be paid to citrate for mental well-being then. Costello and Franklin in 2016 published a review about citrate and its importance for health and how it is being overlooked as an important molecule in our health. They discussed the importance of citrate for bone health, blood coagulation, and hormonal regulation. Fan and colleagues in the journal Aging Cell in 2021 conducted a study on citrate metabolism and the impact on metabolic health and longevity. They noted that adding citrate to the diet of fruit flies increased their lifespan, and adding citrate to the diet of mice reduced their cholesterol levels, promoted the production of ketone bodies for energy, it lowered their blood glucose levels, and it resulted in better memory and cognitive measures as the mice aged. Now, citrate is often looked clinically as a way to treat and prevent kidney stones, as it binds to calcium readily. But otherwise, the information on citrate and how it impacts our brain health is incredibly limited and hopefully will continue to be studied more so now that some of these studies are showing a strong link between citrate and major depressive disorder. But this raises the question, if we want to study the impact of citrate on brain health or mental health, how can we do it? Well, there are some easy ways. For example, it is well understood that exercise increases citrate. For example, Leek and colleagues back in 2001 in the American Journal of Physiology took muscle biopsies from people who were sedentary and from those who exercised regularly. They measured the amount of citrate synthase levels before and after exercise in the muscle. The exercise included leg extensions targeting the quadricep muscle over a 30-minute period at a difficulty level of 50% maximum effort. They noted that this regular exercise increased citrate synthase in the muscle by on average 18%, but particularly acute increases right after exercise were even greater around 50%. 
Graham and colleagues in the journal Applied Physiology, Nutrition, and, and Metabolism in 2008 confirmed the same finding, that exercise increases citrate synthesis. They also interestingly noted that caffeine intake also raises muscle citrate too. The great thing about exercise is that it also increases other energy metabolites such as lactate. In the last episode, episode 152 on the neuroscience of perseverance, I spoke about lactate being an important molecule to promote neuroplasticity along with the molecule BDNF. And neuroplasticity is an important process in our brain that allows us to learn, adapt, and as a result, our ability to persevere and be resilient. And these are key traits that can help us battle against depression. Well, lactate increases quite significantly with higher intensity exercise. In the context of mental health, it is specifically moderate to higher intensity exercise that are most strongly linked to reducing symptoms of depression. So I personally am a big proponent, particularly of high intensity interval training exercises for mental health and for brain health. Corman in the journal Psychiatry Research in 2020 Note that higher intensity exercise was of benefit to depression severity and cardiometabolic health in individuals with severe mental illness. Shush in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2016 reported that moderate to vigorous aerobic activity reduced depression severity. And many, many other studies support the same notion. I think how exercise can promote mental well-being is multifactorial. But I think a huge factor could be that exercise increases the level of energy metabolites. And how these energy metabolites promote our neuroplasticity, and they also promote our ability for resilience and perseverance then. We can kind of think of exercise as the water that hydrates the garden to allow for the garden to grow and prosper. Exercise fuels our brain to be resilient. Pierce in JAMA Psychiatry in 2022 suggests that if individuals are more physically active and met even just half the minimum requirement for exercise, that 11.5% of cases of major depressive disorder could be prevented. So half the minimum requirement of exercise would be 75 to 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week or 37 to 75 minutes of high intensity exercise per week. So can moderate to higher intensity exercise be appropriate for everyone? Well, experts would say it is appropriate for most people, yes. Certainly working to one's own fitness level and capability is key. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, high intensity interval training exercise involves short periods of high effort interspersed with recovery periods of lower intensity and the cycle is repeated multiple times. And a lot of research supports high intensity interval training exercises for cardiometabolic and mental health. Ribeiro, in Annals of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine in 2017, wrote about different high-intensity interval training protocols for individuals who need to be careful with higher-intensity exercise, such as patients with coronary heart disease. For example, they report that short interval, high-intensity interval training exercises, where one could start with just 15 seconds of 70% maximum effort, as their high-intensity component could be a safe way to start out with HIIT exercises. And that 15-second interval of higher intensity will be interspersed with recovery periods of lower intensity in between. This, for example, can be done on a stationary bike, on an elliptical, on a rowing machine or treadmill, for example. Then eventually, if appropriate, 
one can work their way up to three minutes of high-intensity intervals. But please always do seek the advice of your physician or physical therapist, especially if living with a chronic condition. So I think that we can appreciate that there is a significant amount of research to support that exercise increases energy metabolites, which is linked to increased neuroplasticity and reduced depression severity. But besides exercise, how else can one increase levels of these energy metabolites, such as citrate? Well, Yilmaz in the journal Urology in 2008 noted that fresh tomato juice was a good source of citrate and magnesium as well. There was 82 millimoles per liter of citrate in fresh tomato juice. Fresh orange juice and lemon juice were also a good source of citrate at about half the amount that tomato juice provides. So sometimes people consume these beverages to increase their citrate as a way to reduce kidney stone formation too, as citrate will readily bind to calcium and can help prevent the formation of kidney stones. Another well-known phenomenon is that vitamin D deficiency can result in low levels of citrate in the blood as well, and that supplementation with vitamin D can increase plasma citrate concentrations. So low citrate may also be an indication of a vitamin D deficiency. Again, going back to the volcano analogy I gave, maybe it's not necessarily low citrate that is causing or linked to the depression here, but low citrate is indicative of something else going on in the body that is linked to depression. It's really hard to say without more mechanistic studies. But that is often why when we interpret these studies, we try to take a well-rounded approach and suggest overall healthy lifestyle interventions like exercise, like eating fruits and vegetables, as these suggestions overall have more evidence to promote health than suggesting something isolated like citrate supplementation. Major depressive disorder is very complex with multiple factors involved. Previous episodes, I discuss how gut health is linked to major depressive disorder, how inflammation is known to be a direct cause contributing to major depressive disorder, how magnesium deficiency can manifest as irritability and a lot of symptoms associated with generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder, how chronic life stress is also implicated in depression too. That is part of the reason why major depressive disorder is very difficult to treat because there are often different causes and variables involved. But the hope is that we can generate a large toolbox with multiple tools of different kinds to battle against depression. And hopefully for everyone, at least they can pick from that box and at least a couple of those tools will work. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. In today's episode, I bring you a recent study published in JAMA Psychiatry on linking the energy metabolism the energy metabolome, to major depressive disorder. The scientists noted that there were differences in fat metabolism and energy metabolism in individuals living with major depressive disorder. So does this give us a target for preventing or treating depression? It might. We could focus on eating sources of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids like flaxseed, hempseed, chia seed, walnuts, salmon, and sardines. Those might be of benefit, as I highlight back in episode 150. We understand the neurobiology of how omega-3 fatty acids might help to promote mental well-being, and there are meta-analyses of intervention studies where individuals increase their omega-3 fatty acid intake, and it improves their measures of mental health. It's also important, and a lot of people don't note, 
is that it is important to also prevent these healthy fatty acids from being converted into lipid peroxides. And I talk about avoiding heat being applied to those omega-3 rich foods in order to help prevent that. And I have more details on that in episode 150. Patients living with major depressive disorder in this study appeared to have lower citrate levels, which might indicate perturbed energy metabolism. This makes sense biologically as we understand that energy metabolites are important for our brain's ability to be adaptable and for promoting neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is really key in our ability to adapt, to learn, and to persevere. So how can we promote the production of energy metabolites and therefore neuroplasticity? High-intensity interval exercises or just high-intensity exercises in general and adequate vitamin D intake are good examples. So I hope that this episode was interesting and informative for you. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. If you want to support the show, you can do so via the link in the description box to this episode. If you want to see some of the studies I cite in each episode, then you can follow me on social media for more of those details. I hope that you all have a wonderful week, and I look forward to meeting you back here for episode 154. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.